Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 18? We'll be in verses 1 through 8. Now, Christ is addressing the issue of the truth, the biblical truth of two comings of Christ. Judaism was and still is steeped in the error that Messiah would come just victoriously on a horse and the armies of heaven combined with the army of Israel and they would just defeat the Romans. They bypassed the cross. They overlooked all of the prophecies of the first coming of Christ. And they went right to the victorious second coming of Christ. They, they, they rejected the lamb and they wanted the lion. They didn't want the cross. They wanted the crown. And their hearts were steeped in self-righteousness. They had gotten to the point in Judaism that they just didn't see any need for a savior. They were perfectly adequate within themselves to obey the law. Well, of course, that's not true. And that's why so many people are going to be in hell is because they've always believed they could save themselves by their own behavior, by their own works, by their own self-righteousness. So Christ now is addressing this and he's putting down the truth, the biblical truth, but he's bringing it back to their minds. And then of course he will show it within himself as he goes to the cross. The truth that the Messiah comes twice. He comes the first time to suffer and die for the sins of his own. And then secondly, he comes victorious, victoriously and, and uh, conquers, conquers the world and establishes his kingdom on earth. So we're still within that context here as we move into Luke 18. Come, Lord Jesus. Then he was speaking a parable to them about the way it always behooves them to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain judge in a certain city not fearing God and not respecting man. There was then a widow in that city, and she was coming to him, saying, Avenge me or justify me of my adversary. And he would not for a time. However, he said within himself afterward, If even though I fear not God nor respect man, yet because this widow causes me trouble, I will avenge her so that not, so that not to end her coming. She keeps striking me. Now the Greek word means to strike in the eye. It was a, it's a boxing term, and the judge is saying, if I don't do this, she's going to keep coming and poking me in the eye. She keeps striking me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will God not execute the avenging of his elect, the ones crying out to him day and night, and be patient in regard to them? I say to you that he will execute the avenging of them in quickness. Nevertheless, the Son of Man having come... Will he indeed find faith on the earth? Quickly, I want to make six statements from this passage of Scripture. First of all, in this passage, Christ in his teaching clarifies 
two comings. Let's look at it. Back in verse one. Then, what does that mean? Well, it means that after it's, it's still in the same time in the context of what was previous in Luke, in Luke 17. Then he was speaking a parable to them. To whom? Contextually, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to believers. Essentially, he's talking to you and me. To them about the way it always behooves them to pray and not lose heart. I want to concentrate on the, the word uh, behooves and, and then I guess the phrase lose heart. It's important to note that the term behooves, it's, it's in the present infinitive active. Now let me tell you why that's important. In the present tense, it means that it just keeps on happening. It's a habitual thing. So the, the, the believers, the disciples of the Lord keep praying about the return, about his return, about what he has just addressed previously, uh, the kingdom being established and so forth. In the infinitive, an infinitive, now this is important for theological purposes and to strengthen us in our, in our doctrinal persuasion, you understand? The term, it behooves, Dean, it behooves, is always articular. That means it always has an article before it, which it does, to, to den. It always follows a preposition, and it does pros. I'm sorry, uh, to them. And in the infinitive, it always hangs on or is identified with the, with the uh, powerful verb, which here is to pray. Now, lose heart is in the same voice, tense, and mood that behooves is. So they both, they both are identical in that sense. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. Here's what that means. Christ here is identifying the truth that it's going to be quite some time before he comes again. That's, what he, that's, why, that's why the Holy Spirit gives to us this word in the present infinitive. It speaks, you could say, it behooves us so as to or with the result of. And it's back up to the kingdom. In other words, it's going to be a while before Christ comes again. He's headed to the cross. He's not, he's not, headed, uh, he's not headed in Jerusalem to set himself up here on, on the throne as the son of David. He has a throne in heaven. He's enthroned, of course, in our hearts. And that's what he's doing between the time he dies and the time he comes again, between the time he's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Between then and now, he's, he's gathering his own. So in every generation, Christ is saying, it always behooves believers to pray and not lose heart. Today, around the world, and we're beginning to feel it increasingly in our own country, believers in Christ are coming under great pressure. Here and there, in pockets of history, Christians have suffered, the early Christians, of course, suffered 
Christians in every generation at somewhere in the world are always suffering because of their faith. We Sometimes we're denied uh, work. Some Christians are denied even the basic rights of citizenship in some places. In some places they're beheaded. It's always difficult sooner or later to be a disciple of Christ. It's just the nature of, of faith. Christ said to his disciples, you're no better than your master and they'll do it to me. They'll do it to you. So he's saying here in all of the time between the time he dies for our sins in his first coming, he accomplishes what he's supposed to accomplish in his first coming. From then until he comes again, every generation of true believer prays, prays to the Lord and never loses heart that he, was, that he would establish the kingdom. You remember the model prayer, thy kingdom come? That's, that's what God's people are expected to do all of the time in every generation. Christ here in this teaching, number one, clarifies the fact that he comes first and then he's coming again. He fulfills the prophecies of the first coming of the suffering Messiah. And then, after a period of time, and we'll see what that means here in a minute, he will come again in power and glory. Okay, number two, and I'm, I'm clicking clickless here. Okay. All right, thank you. How much more will a loving Heavenly Father do for his own. All right. Of course, the widow is, an, is, she illustrates the elect, the people of God, today the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The judge has authority to justify or to avenge a wrong that has been done to this widow. Now, Christ uses a widow because in his culture, in his day, women were helpless and powerless, but especially widows who didn't have a, who didn't have a husband or, or someone to, to argue in their behalf. So she is depicted here as someone who is utterly helpless in the world She's being mistreated, and she needs the judge to make everything right for her. That's the way the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. Frankly, we can never expect fairness in this life if we are true born-again believers. That's the truth. And we cannot, we're not what we ought to be or what we claim to be if we compromise ourselves in this world. So that means that we suffer. The widow is suffering, and there is someone that she calls upon all of the time. Christ here contrasts God, the lover of his people, to the unloving, evil, wicked judge who by his own confession says he did not have any fear of God and no respect for man. What a guy to be a judge.
But here he says, Christ says, listen. Notice what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God, who is your loving heavenly father, who loves you and cares for you and called you to himself, places his arms around you, will God not execute the avenging of his elect? Well, of course. How much more will a loving heavenly father do for his own? Here we are like the widow. We are pleading and crying out day and night and not losing heart that God will avenge us. He will bring justice for his own. I'll tell you something else about that uh, term behooves in the infinitive. If you put the whole tech, the context together, it seems to imply that we are crying out for the second coming of Christ, for the kingdom to be established in this world, and those who have departed this life are crying out as well. Think about that. They're not all, those who have left this life, they're somehow outfitted in an intermediate state. But they're not resurrected, they're not glorified, they don't have the power, nor do they have the mobility that they will have in glorification via resurrection. Why would they not be as anxious in their way as we are in our way? Remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He said, God will bring them with him. The dead in Christ will rise first, so they are, they are, they are joined to their glorified bodies, and then those of us who remain are caught up, seized from impending danger to be with them, thus wherever with the Lord. So there's a crying out, will God not execute the justice for his elect? If an evil judge does this on earth, how much more will God avenge his elect? Number three, will not our great God avenge his elect in this sense? We are his. We are the ones whom he has called to himself. Let me tell you, here is, here is the mission of God. It's given to us in the Bible. It's very clear. The mission of God is this, that within his created time-space continuum, God will perform in time what he determined to do before time or outside of time, in eternity, if you want to say that. The Lamb's book of life, before the foundation of the world. Now, God creates everything, and in the course of the existence of the time-space continuum, God is gathering His own to Himself according to His purpose and His will. That will make a little more sense in just a second. These are the, these are the elect of God. Will not our great God avenge His elect, those who are His very own, whom He loves, whom He has determined to bless with eternal life from eternity to eternity? Number four, God will satisfy His grace before He satisfies 
his wrath. Now this picks up on what we just said. And will God not execute the avenging of his elect, the ones crying out to him day and night, and be patient in regard to them? And be patient in regard to his elect. Now, I don't know who all they are. We preach and evangelize and we, we, we execute work through missions and we try to be obedient to the Great Commission so that we can preach the gospel and reach out far and wide as much as we can, as far as our resources will let us go. But God is always at work through the various lives, the individual lives and the corporate lives within the church of His own people. And God in His own divine way uses the proclamation of the truth and the, and the work of the church and so forth to gather His own to Himself. I don't know who they are. But I know they're not completed yet because we're still here. So we have to keep proclaiming, if you're here today without Christ, I would plead with you to come today and be saved. Take Christ as your Savior. Have faith in Him. Put all of your sins on Him. He carries them to the cross and puts them away. And He puts His perfect, innocent life within you. Be saved today. This is my plea wherever I am in preaching and in teaching the Bible. So here we are. God uses that in His own way according to His purpose and His plan to gather His elect. Now God is being patient. Here's what we mean. He ain't through yet. Some of these guys to whom Christ was speaking are going to die terrible deaths because they're proclaimers of the gospel. Don't you think they were crying out and pleading for God to send His Son and take us out of this mess, but He didn't? On until today, there's no telling what kind of suffering as Christians we have yet to face in our own country. Why? Because God is patient. Now, let here, I think there's a, there's a passage of Scripture that can explain this in 2 Peter 3. Do not let this one thing be hidden from you, beloved, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. God does not delay His promise as some esteem slowness. slowness. Now the word means, it's, it's, the, it's the same word delay or slow, it means to be tardy. God can't be tardy. You understand that? I don't know how they do it today. When I was a kid in school, if you, were, if you came in after the bell, you were tardy. You had to do something. You had to pay for it, you know. There was a punishment because you were tardy. So we esteem tardiness. You know, man, he's taking a long time. He's late. May I say this to you, and, and it, it is a vernacular that is used flippantly and erroneously with regard to the second coming of Christ. Christ will neither hasten His coming or delay His coming. It's impossible. It is a fixed and set point in time. He's not late, and He ain't going to be early. So, 
here's what Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit through Peter. The Lord is not tardy regarding his promise. Hey, what promise? To bring us into the kingdom, to put an end to this mess. As some think of tardiness, but is patient toward you, second person, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now we drop down, to complete the thought, we drop down to verse 15. And esteem the patience of our Lord as salvation. Let me tell you what that context means. It means that God is not willing to lose a single one of his elect just because you're in a hurry. That's what it means. I have believed all of my life that I would not face death, and I have believed and still believe today that Jesus Christ is coming to catch me up in a way, and I will not face death. I have yet to buy a grave, whatever you call them, plot, lot, whatever they are. I'm going to leave that to Pat. Because I just keep believing that Jesus... It's coming. But even if I die, it is because God is not through and the years have gone by and a day with Him is a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day and He doesn't count time the way that I do. And God is at work and He will not stop until all of His own have come to repentance. No other way. Because we esteem the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's what that means. This is why we read in this text that he is patient regarding his elect. He's not going to stop until he's done all. John said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will lose not a one of them, Jesus says, John 6. And raise him up at the last day. Not a one will be lost. Fifthly, when God sends judgment, it will happen quickly and in rapid succession. Verse 8, I say to you that he will execute the avenging of them in quickness. If you are a student of eschatology, if you're a student of prophecy, You're always looking for signs on the horizon, you know. And those who have the persuasion that I have can see, you know, there is so much bundled up and ready to go. And once it starts, it's going to be like an avalanche. It won't stop. It's going to happen quickly in succession. You see the Greek, uh, the Greek text, in taki, in rapidity, rapidly. Once, you see, the final one of his own is gathered in, the world will be plunged into tribulation. And the things that bring the world right into that will start happening just like that. 
Then one seal is broken, and the second seal is broken, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. And then the trumpets are blown one after the other until the seven are blown. And then one bowl of wrath after another poured out until the end comes. And the world will have this explosion of horrible events of judgment, cataclysmic events that have never been seen in all of the history of mankind. It really gets bad at that point. When God starts executing judgment, justice for His elect, he'll, it'll start falling on this world rapidly. And it won't stop until Christ comes in power and glory and establishes His kingdom for a thousand years. Finally, when He comes, will He find His people at that time crying out for His return? Look at this. I say, this is Jesus talking. I say to you that He will execute the avenging of them in quickness. Nevertheless, the Son of Man having come, will He indeed find faith on the earth? That's a fairly pointed question. Every day, you call yourself a believer, that's fine. Every day, do you long for the return of Christ? Is it uppermost in your mind? Do you pray for it? Do you take hold of that judge the way the widow did and say, Oh God, relieve us of this world. We long to be with you and in your kingdom. It's a valid question. Will those who call themselves the people of God when the Lord comes again, will indeed they be praying, begging, asking, looking for, not losing heart? Christ seems to imply something that we studied in our recent retreat. The apostasis, the apostasy. Of the close of the many will stand off from the faith, stand away from the faith. It ain't cool to be a Christian. It's a lot cooler than those who are, who are not Christians. It's going to be hot for them. Will he indeed find faith on the earth? Is, is this a thing that consumes your life and your heart? Longing to live and stand in the presence of Christ, the Savior, the Creator, the one who loved me from before the foundation of the world. I will spend into the ages of the ages being taught about the sovereign grace of God. It's an inexhaustible thing. An inexhaustible thing. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus, I believe, is coming soon. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners, but I'm telling you, He's coming again in power and glory. According to the Bible, if you will admit that you're a sinner 
and believe in Jesus Christ, who is the only way to be saved, and in confession of your sin, call on Him to save you, God will save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In a moment, we'll stand and sing our song of invitation on the first verse. Let me urge you to come to Christ. Just come and take me by the hand and say, Preacher, I want to be saved. Let me pray with you. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, and God leads you to come into this membership. We'll take care of all of those details if you come for that as well. Father God in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. It is true. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It's unshakable. It's irreversible. Now, Lord, in the best way that we know how, it's been presented. And only you can use it to apply it to the hearts of those who are here. Father, if there's someone here without Christ, oh God, I pray that that person will be saved today. If there's someone who is here who needs to come and officially be a part of this body of Christ, I pray for those as well that you would accomplish your will today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Would you come?